King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes, and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds, your majesty, you are that tree. 
you have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honour and splendour were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisers and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Daniel chapter 5. 
King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and the nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall, near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so afraid that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen... Hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the highest, third highest ruler in the kingdom." Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, 
his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds it in your hand, in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. This is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to, your, to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylons, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you for that reading, and thank you to all of you for putting up with another long couple of readings as we continue to explore through Daniel. Uh, I promise that that will be the last long reading that we have to deal with from the book of Daniel until the next one that we have to read through. Um, But I'm not sorry about it because it's great stuff. So good to be back as we continue on in this book. I'm excited to look at these two tales, one of which ends the chapter on Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel. We're starting to pull together some of the themes that we've been talking about up until this point. And with that, we'll also see Daniel himself take a step up as well. These are the things that are going to be so key for our understanding of the book as we get into the second half. Uh, All that we've done so far is kind of preparing us for this. And these chapters today are really about trying to lock these things in. Uh, If you are still kind of teetering on whether or not you can come along to Rivendell, um, before my current um, doctoral thesis, um, the last kind of paper I wrote uh, was called The Power of Prologue. And in it, I essentially argue that Daniel 1 to 6 is the prologue of the book of Daniel and that Daniel 7 to 12 is the kind of meat and bones. The first half is about helping us establish some ideas to understand the second half of the book. Um, So really, by not coming on Rivendell, you're just reading the introduction of the book and potentially missing out on some good stuff. Um, But there you go. That's the last guilt trip that hopefully you'll get from anyone up the front for now about Rivendell. Today should hopefully be a great comfort for us while also a challenge as we consider what it means for us to understand who God is, yet sometimes feel like he might not be there. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we pray now that as we consider your truth that you give us uh, a spirit of understanding that you grow in us a knowledge of who you are, and that you help us to endure as we trust you with the world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, something I've discovered living in Australia, I'm originally from the UK, moved here when I was about 12, went back, came back again, um, is Australians love seeing people be humbled. There's something about uh, Australian tall poppy syndrome, is kind of one of the national sports is kind of seeing people who puff themselves up a little bit too much get brought down quickly.
quickly. Uh, and it was, I have a story about this from the UK. Um, I've been asked to highly anonymize this story, so I'm going to do my best so I don't get in trouble. Um, but a friend of mine worked at a really prestigious private school in London. And generally in London, when, the, when there's kind of these high-paying private schools, every once in a while, you get kind of a more famous person comes along to look at the school and see whether or not they're going to send their kids there. And there was a particular uh, English actor who came along to this person's school, uh, and he was kind of really well-known in England for particularly English films. Uh, and when he gets there for his tour, the person on the desk is an 18-year-old gap year student. And she asks him, they're kind of filling out the forms you need to fill out before you can enter the school as an adult when there's lots of children. Uh, and she asks him for an email address. And he says, oh, I'm not going to give you that. And she was like, oh, it's kind of a thing you've got to do. Like, you're an adult entering a school with other people's children. We've got forms we have to fill out to kind of fulfill our obligations. What about the, the email address of, like, your agent or whatever that gave us the initial application? He said, no, no, I'm not going to give you that type of information. And this 18-year-old girl turned to him and said, that's fine, you can leave. And she sent him on his way. Um, I love that story, largely because I think she's just got a story for life, right, that she gets to tell lots of people. Um, but particularly because we like seeing people who kind of think a little bit too much of themselves be humbled. Uh, Twitter is an amazing place for this, right? as kind of celebrities like to put stuff out there and it doesn't always work out for them. Uh, there's an artist called Rita Ora who made this mistake. Uh, she tweeted, dropping my new song Monday if this gets 100,000 retweets. And it got 1,300. Uh, she was kind of forced to post later on uh, that this wasn't actually her posting and that it got hacked, but I think we're all a little bit suspicious about whether or not that's actually true. Uh, we like people who, who are humble. We desire to kind of see people who de demonstrate humility and that we can learn from. People like this guy, who show us immense levels of personal humility. The new pope is a humble man, very much like me, which probably explains why I like him so much. Nothing like comparing yourself to the pope to make people think that you are humble. Well, today, we see the ultimate king of the ancient world humbled before God. This is a painting by William Blake, uh, The Madness of Nebuchadnezzar. Once again, we find ourselves, just like we did in chapter 2, in the bedroom of the king, right? A place where in the ancient world you would never go, you would never get access to. It's vulnerable. It reveals kind of, we see Nebuchadnezzar scared and writhing around. It undermines his power and authority. This time as well, we hear the story from his point of view. We get it in the first person, which is another fantastic literary device that undermines him, right? It makes him the narrator. We're inside his head. And when the battle is between who is the Lord, Nebuchadnezzar, or God, well, we never get to hear God's narration, right? We never get to be inside the head of God. But we do get that level of intimacy with Nebuchadnezzar. And it begins the final chapter of Nebuchadnezzar's tale where he is finally brought to heel by the God of Daniel. And so Neb's had another dream, a dream that terrifies him. And by this point, we've kind of come to expect, I hope, we've come to expect the way the narrative develops from here. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He calls in his advisors. They fail. We kind of need Daniel to do it, right? He's the man for the job. Daniel is his man to call in. By this point in the story, we know he is. Neb knows he is. 
But Nebuchadnezzar will still struggle to fully understand one thing that is key for our reading of Daniel, particularly later. And that is that listening to Daniel's advice is the only way forward. Nebuchadnezzar recounts the dream, the dream of a great tree standing tall over the world, a source of life, providing for all animals and birds of the air. It looks invincible, but something happens. An angel, or actually it says a watcher, which is an apocalyptic term for angel, comes down and announces the destruction and humiliation of the tree. It may look strong, but the edict, the decree of the Lord is inevitable. Nebuchadnezzar turns to Daniel and asks him to interpret. And Daniel at this point is a little bit reluctant. Uh, We see actually that Daniel doesn't delight in the destruction of his enemy. He's known him for a while now, and so he kind of pities him. But in the face of that, Daniel, ever committed to God's will, gives us the interpretation. The tree is Nebuchadnezzar, the great king whose empire reigns over most of the known world. But it has been decreed by the Lord that he will be struck down and driven away to live like an animal until he recognizes who the true Lord is. And so Daniel gives him a little bit of advice. Uh, This isn't from the dream itself. This advice is from Daniel's wisdom. Verse 27, therefore, your majesty, please be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. In spite of everything that has happened so far, Nebuchadnezzar is unable to let go, unable to humble himself, unable to put him to lower himself before the Lord. And so for the reader, by this point, we feel an inevitability, don't we, of what is going to occur. You see, in the narrative, it's built up an implied confidence in us. We've seen what happens each time. We've got the story pattern in our heads by this point. And so we know that the will of God will come to pass. We have confidence in his will. And then the passage confirms it. Verse 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? I mean, we know what's coming at this point, right? Even as the words are on his lips, it happens. His kingdom is stripped away, but more than that, he's driven away into the wilderness. He's stripped of all that he has. He's forced to live like an animal. Indeed, he essentially becomes a beast. We see in the passage that Nebuchadnezzar is taken from one extreme to another. He goes from being the greatest power in the world to nothing but an animal. And so finally, he realizes what he should have a long time ago. This God is more powerful than he could imagine and has sovereignty over all things. Verse 34, at the, time, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Yet I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. Nebuchadnezzar gives honor to the heavens and is restored. The great king 
This great power, the most powerful person in all the world with wealth and military might has had it all taken from him just as easily as it had been given to him. And so Nebuchadnezzar declares these words that I've sneakily been having as our final words so far this series. Um, I thought it was kind of nice, but also a little bit funny that we've been saying the words of Nebuchadnezzar uh, up until this point without necessarily knowing what happens to him. And Nebuchadnezzar says his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. This is echoing Daniel 2, right? Daniel 2, 20 to 23. And all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, anyone reading this in the ancient world would stand back at this point and say, wow. If Nebuchadnezzar can be reformed, then there is no limit to what God can do to the great leaders of this world who think that they are in control but it could have been so much easier for Nebuchadnezzar, right? If he had just listened to Daniel. And so we get to the story of his son in Daniel chapter 5. Because is God determined to reform all of these kings? What if the king is worse in his acts against the Most High than Nebuchadnezzar was? Verse 1. We're straight into the action. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Okay, so I think at this point, we all know what's gonna happen, right? This is gonna be bad for King Belshazzar. And at this moment, um, if you can, just, you can quickly flick back to chapter 1 and take a quick look at verse 2. And what you'll see in that verse at the start of the book of Daniel is that Nebuchadnezzar, for all his flaws, at least had the decency to treat the articles of the temple of the Lord with some level of respect. Right? He puts them in the treasury of his own God, but he puts them in a very prized, protected place. Belshazzar suffers from the fact that he does not have, and this is kind of historically, he suffers from the fact that he doesn't have any glory that come from great battles and victories. Nebuchadnezzar had that, right? Belshazzar doesn't have that. And so he's only kind of able to establish himself and his glory through opulence, through great banquets, and by getting the spoils of previous wars out to show that they're connected to him and how great he is too. But it is a terrible mistake. And we quickly see that this king is nothing but a scared boy. A hand appears and writes a message on the wall, unreadable for those who are there. Generally speaking, you might be unique and awesome at this. Generally speaking, I think we're not great at taking advice from each other, right? Um, it's kind of a pride that comes from, from this. Like when someone tries to give us advice, if we take it, we're kind of assuming that they're better than us or that they know better than us. Um, and sometimes, I don't know, we're just bad at listening to other people because we think we know what the right thing is. Um, a little while ago, I had a dream that, I was in a, uh, that me and my wife were in an apocalypse kind of situation. And we died. 
And we died because in particular situations, she didn't listen to me, all right? So I woke up furious, right? I was angry all day about it. Um, now, I like to think that that anger is justified because that's probably what would happen in that situation, but it's maybe a little bit unreasonable. Um, a situation when I was pretty bad at taking advice uh, was a few times when I was in the military. Um, taking advice from your peers in the military is a risky thing because sometimes they're not kind of looking out for your best interests in a particular situation. Um, but we do this obstacle course quite often, and there was a section of it that I hadn't done before. There was a big rope wall. And so a rope wall is kind of, it's a bunch of rope that you can climb up. Um, it's got all the squares in it. We see them all the time in kind of kids' play parks too. Um, what we were doing is we were up on a platform that was about three meters up. You're wearing a pack and you had to jump from the platform onto the rope and climb up it. Now, before, we, before I went up, one of my friends who had done it before said to me, um, no person is actually strong enough that has enough grip strength to grab the rope like this. Um, because you're jumping quite far, so you're hitting it quite hard, and you've got a heavy pack on, um, you can't actually grab it firmly enough. And so what you've got to do is drive your arms through the holes in the rope, hook it down, and then you kind of hang, and then you can climb up once the momentum stopped. Um, I like to think that I'm a lot stronger than this guy who was giving me advice. Uh, and so when I jumped, I went for the natural grip, fell three meters onto my back, looked like a complete idiot. Sometimes we just need to take advice, but we're bad at doing that, I think, a lot. And we'll often push people away who like to give us lots of advice or if we don't kind of want to listen to them. Well, look at this situation. The king sends for his enchanters, but they're useless, right? And so he is stuck. Do you notice an absence in this situation? Where is Daniel? Where is he? Well, likely he's a vestige of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom that Belshazzar kind of feels threatened by those things and probably pushed him away and then doesn't remember who he is. Well, luckily someone steps up the plate to the plate to save the day. The queen, in verse 10, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence, wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, he appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, who was, who was called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding. Call for Daniel, right? And he will tell you what the writing means. And so we finally get the first Babylonian character in the book that has any kind of real sense. Turns out, probably not surprisingly, it's also the only female character in the book. A woman's finally turned up to say something that makes sense. The queen, most likely Belshazzar's mum, and it turns out that the king does not even remember Daniel. Now if up to this point, we've been starting to see that listening to Daniel is key to the king's doing well, then it makes sense that things have gone so badly for King Belshazzar. And so enters Daniel. Now, at this point in the book, I like to think of Daniel as kind of an Obi-Wan kind of figure. Now, not kind of Obi-Wan from the 
terrible prequels, but Obi-Wan from the first made Star Wars movie, A New Hope. He's this mysterious figure kind of out in the desert. He's old, he's wise, he's got the knowledge, he knows what to do. Uh, we've seen Daniel as kind of Padawan young Daniel. We saw him as kind of a young dude, but now Daniel is fully grown. He's experienced and he's been brought back in and he has this mysterious air about him, right? He's, he's a Jedi master by this point. He's the one who has the wisdom to deal with this situation. And at this point in the narrative, we really do think of him as the guy. And so Daniel enters. And we quickly see that he does not share the affection for Belshazzar that he had for Nebuchadnezzar. He rejects all of his gifts out of hand. He barely recognizes his authority. But nevertheless, he will interpret the writing for him. But first... He really wants everyone to know how much Belshazzar sucks. And so he goes on a long recount of the events of Nebuchadnezzar with the purpose of comparing them. He talks about how much greater that king was and yet how he was humbled before God. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. You and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank from them. You praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. Can you see where this is going for him? Daniel then interprets the inscription. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Do you note the present tense there? Bad news, buddy. This is the end of the road for you. Now, Belshazzar rewards Daniel anyway showing us really who is the true great one in the court. And then that very night, verse 30, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Belshazzar dies and the kingdom falls to the next kingdom, just as was predicted in the dream of the statue in Daniel chapter 2. Now in this chapter we see that God is not destined to reform all leaders, nor should he show them mercy should he decide not to. Do you notice how Belshazzar doesn't get an opportunity to right his wrongs? In the case of a king whose crimes are so idolatrous, a king who is arguably worse than Nebuchadnezzar, then we see God act to destroy him. And just as the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar was instant, so is the death of Belshazzar. This is not a God who is limited in what he will do. He clearly chooses to act as he wills for his purpose. And these two stories are really important for the readers to see. Uh, we're, generally speaking today, detail-orientated people, and that we like to know the details of things that are going to happen. 
Like if you just kind of message a friend and say, I'm going to pick you up at nine, they kind of ha usually have some follow-up questions as to what's going to happen then. Uh, I've started dealing with a lot more brides than I ever have in my life uh, now that I work at this church. And I can tell you, they're detail-orientated people. They love details. They do not like vagueness from me in any situation, particularly at the rehearsals. Um, I'm not a particularly detail-orientated guy. Uh, and this had a couple of situations for me when I was a youth pastor in my early 20s. Um, at a church in South Sydney, when I was working there, uh, one, of the, uh, one of my youth leaders was the senior minister's wife. And she's an absolutely wonderful, servant-hearted woman who's still a very close friend to these days. But man, she detail-orientated. And man, did that affect our working relationship at times. Uh, I would often run games in the hall and the lack of detail that I kind of put into my explanation of what my plan was ahead of time, um, but particularly um, when we were, the game was running, um, elements of danger I kind of thought were fun. She didn't feel the same way. And so she'd come and talk to me about various details of the games and how they're going um, and, and what she thought was kind of playing out and what would be dangerous. Um, and my catchphrase was, oh, I'm just going to see how it plays out. Uh, and so after a term, she kind of decided that it was better for our friendship that she didn't lead youth group with me. Um, but we're still great friends to this day. But the fact is, is I think for most of us now, we actually are quite detail-orientated, or we desire detail, especially when it comes to the ways that God is working in the world. Especially at times when we're struggling to understand what's happening in the context of how God works. When we see immense suffering, when we see people struggling. In our book today, we first see that God has the power to humble and reform even the most powerful ruler. There is no king on earth who is too powerful, too evil, too destructive to be transformed by the work of God. Second, we see that he is able to deal with rulers swiftly, should he deem it so. And so the question that we have is not, can God do something? The question is, is it his will? For all people who have suffered under great rulers, this is an important thing to have to think about. 400 years later, a ruler would come and persecute the Jews horrifically in Jerusalem. Antiochus was the last leader in a line that stretches all the way back to Babylon, through the Medes, through the Persians, through the Greeks in Alexander the Great when he conquers Persia. And then when his empire was broken up by his generals after his death, Antiochus was the descendant of one of these generals. And he had taken control of Jerusalem following a war with the Egyptians. Now, unfortunately for the Jews, they had actually backed the Egyptians in this war. And so Antiochus was back, and he was eager for vengeance. This took the form of a persecution where many of them were killed. The ability to make sacrifices was taken away from them, and the temple was profaned. I think we would forgive these people for having asked, where is God? Is he powerless? Does he exist? In the time of Jesus, the Jews faced the unstoppable might of the Roman Empire. People waiting for their king to come, desperate to be restored, facing the might of the Romans, they could have been forgiven for asking those same questions. And from then until now, there have been many times when the people of God have faced innumerable odds. 
We think in today's world with the experiences of Christians in China, in the Middle East, in Africa, when empires have attempted to snuff out the last flame of Christian hope, when suffering in the world is too great, where is God? Well, the truth from the book of Daniel is that God has never been absent, that he is in charge, that he is in power, and he is greater than any force that comes against his people. And the very evidence I think that we have for this is that we are still here. God's people have outlasted the great kingdoms. They have endured persecution. They have held to the truth in the face of terrifying odds. The dream of the rise and fall of empires is true. Leaders have been brought down. The truth has continued. And in Jesus, we saw that the king that was promised to bring the eternal kingdom is true too. God is in charge. And so as we move forward next week and into our weekend away, we're going to continue to learn more about this. Next week, we'll think about how to respond if the ruler who rules over us is friendly towards us. And I think we'll be surprised about what the Bible says. But we must also respond to the fact that Daniel is a guy worth listening to, that his character has been developed to convince us of this for us to hold his speech in high esteem so that when he speaks directly to us in chapters 7 to 12, we listen because we've seen what happens to those who do not. This is a hard teaching today, I think. Uh, sometimes the Bible, particularly the book of Daniel, it doesn't kind of act like the soft comfort blanket that we would sometimes want it to be. But that's because it's real. It gets it. It gets the suffering of God's people. It gets the times when it feels like there will be no end and God is not acting in this world. And it calls us to endure. To endure because God ultimately is the only one worth standing by. We're meant to look at the three men who have refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar because they know that whether or not they face the furnace, whether or not they are burnt by it, that their God is the only one who has any power over anything. And so he is the only one who they can stand by. And so instead of giving us an answer, it simply says, trust. Trust in who your God is. Trust his power and trust his character. And we, have a, and we have a reason to trust him. Because each of us here, ultimately, we deserve to be humbled just like Nebuchadnezzar was. To be taken from our moment of greatest glory and brought to the opposite end, to an ultimate low of suffering. But instead, God himself did what he did to Nebuchadnezzar to himself that he brought himself low, that he left his throne and chose to be humiliated, chose to face the suffering and humiliation that we in turn would have deserved. And so we are called to endure, to face the world not knowing all of the details of what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day or the day after or in a few years from now but to know that because we endure, because we know who our God is, we know that we can trust his character, 
We know that he has the power to do what he wills. And so we know that we can trust the plan. And of course, we ultimately know how it will end and who will finally rule it for eternity. Let me pray. Father, sometimes what the Bible has to say is hard. But we pray, Lord, that this would be a comfort to us. We thank you that you have shown us who you are. And we thank you that you are both powerful and trustworthy. And so we pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you help us on the journey of trusting you each day as we face suffering that the Bible knows is real and that the Bible understands. And so we pray, Lord, that you help us to fix our eyes on our King and to trust him each day anew. But we pray, Lord, that you give us your Holy Spirit to do this because we know we can't do it on our own. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.